So, today we go through Habakkuk chapter 2. And while you're going there, I just want to talk to you briefly about what's missing in this world. <laughs> right? What's missing? <laughs> right? We don't have time for everything. You're absolutely 110% right. But as the foundation of every single relationship on this earth, every single relationship, it is built on one thing, and that thing is trust. And trust seems to be a hot commodity, let alone a rare commodity in these days and these times that we're living in right now. But it's not to say that these days and these times are so much more difficult, so much harder, for we know that there's nothing new under the sun, especially as we've talked about last week. You know, Habakkuk's major complaint was all about the challenges that they were facing, you know, initially as a country and, you know, wicked rulers and leaders and everything else. But, but you see this, this trust that's missing. And I feel like it's rightly so sometimes because the Lord in the Sermon on the Mount tells us, you know, don't, don't use condemnation in your judgment. Don't be naive in your judgment, but use discernment in your judgment. And that discernment ultimately comes from God and God's ways and his design. We have our own sets of values and everything that goes along with that, but trust is still ultimately missing, and, and maybe it's rightly so, because there's less and less trustworthy people out there, maybe? I don't know. It, it seems that way. And it, it might just be the realization and the advent of technology and how, you know, because of social media and because of the Internet and because of everything else, we have all these avenues to see just how untrustworthy everyone can be, just how broken everyone can be, just how sinful everyone can be. But we know, and especially as brothers and sisters in the Lord, sons and daughters of the Lord Most High, that our Heavenly Father is trustworthy. We should know this. should be within the core, ultimately, of our being. But unfortunately, there's people who talk about being in Christ that aren't necessarily in Christ, and that those technically give us, who are in Christ, a bad name. And so... How, how does one combat this? The answer is you take it day by day and step by step as it's always been. And you walk humbly with the Lord your God. And that's what Habakkuk points us to again. The sermon title, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. That's taken directly from Psalm 118 verse 8. It is verbatim copied. This is nothing new. <laughs> this is the truth for life for our own lives and those that are around us and those that we have an opportunity to minister to because we all have those opportunities every single day, whether it's wife, husband, children, co-worker, the list goes on and on. Every person that we deal with is an opportunity for ministry and we do this on a daily basis. So how this turns and how this will eventually work out is we'll see we'll see that God is certainly trustworthy and that can bring that spring in our step to not necessarily worry so much about what our brothers and sisters are doing, but to just, again, live in that moment 
live with the knowledge of the truth that Jesus is Lord, he is king, and that he is good. And God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. We learned that from 1 John when we went through that. So we see all this, and I just want you to know that Habakkuk means to embrace, and we're embracing faith in the faithful one. Not that this is legalism or law or anything like that, because the faith that I'm talking about already exists because you know who God is, and you know what he's done, and you know that his plans are good, and that they will continue to be good. And we can take rest and refuge in that from what seems like chaotic storms, you know, swirling around our lives, if you will. So, dear Heavenly Father, we know that you are good, and we trust that you are good, and we have the faith to know that salvation is at your hands and at your disposal through Jesus, through your Son. And so, Lord Jesus, continue in this moment to show us faith. Show us reasons why you are trustworthy and true. Show us why we can live humbly and honestly and in the moment while we patiently wait and endure for your second coming as well as opportunities to continue to share your grace and, and your love with other people that we come in contact with in our lives. So bless this time, bless this sermon. It's in your name, Jesus, we will forever pray. Amen. All right, so Habakkuk chapter 2. And I did include verse 1 again, which we finished with last week, just because it is a, a phenomenal wraparound verse, and I'm going to show you why. So but we'll read it like this. I will take my stand at my watch post and station, stay, bleh, station myself on the tower. And look out to see what he will say to me, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him! who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house, for by cutting off many peoples you have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The voice, the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Hopefully I don't lose my place today. I'm going to have to hold this book like this to make sure that it stops blowing around just because it's so windy. But either way. So let's start from... from Going back, so we learned last week, we saw Habakkuk have complaints. We understand that this is a lament and that Habakkuk has questions, just like all of us. We all have questions. Why is this happening? Why is that happening? If you're a good God, and, and Lord, we know you're a good God, why are these things happening? The answer to that and God's answer to that comes all in this chapter. And it's not something shocking or revelatory to us, but it is a life verse that hopefully we can you know, have God right on our hearts so that we remember it. Um, but we see at the end of it that there was a complaint, then there was God's reply from the last chapter, then there was a second complaint. Like, why are you using Babylon, who's even worse than us, to, to be a part of this? But here's the thing. God knows. God knows what's going on in Israel. God knows what's going on in Babylon. God knows what the future holds. He is sovereign over all these things. This is his part of his omniscience and being all-knowing all, all and omnipresence and being everywhere at the same time. So we see this, and this whole first point and, and bringing, bringing it back is that Habakkuk is showing that faithful lament that we talked about in a sense of acknowledging God for exactly who he is and what he's done, as well as giving him the, the dignity and respect that he so rightly deserves. An unfaithful lament is pretty much the exact opposite of that. And there goes my notes. <laughs> I know, I know, it's all terrible. Yep. And so verse 1, in that we see that Habakkuk is faithfully waiting, if you will. But this whole first passage is, and, and the first three verses are examples of faith and examples of trust in God in all of this. And so I want you to see that, and especially verse by verse to see that. So I will take my stand at my washpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Very simply, very honestly, when we go back, and especially in chapter 1, 
verse 12, you start to begin to see this. Are you not from everlasting? And he says, O Lord, my God, my Holy One. And then he calls him Rock a little bit farther than that. O Lord and O Rock. These are all ultimately covenant promises that Habakkuk is remembering in these moments. That here's the thing. God is faithful to answer his own. The covenant promise was that I will be their God and they will be my people. That we have this relationship and this relationship gets restored. And so because of these covenant promises that started way back you know, in the day, I mean, the first one is Noah, that he's not going to destroy him. Then you see Abraham, descendants as numerous as the stars, and it, and it keeps going down. You've got Moses, you've got King David, all of these people in that. But that God is faithful to answer. This whole thing, Habakkuk, is unique because it's a conversation just between Habakkuk and God. There is forewarning here for, you know, Israel and and the people of God, if you will. But this whole, you know, little minor prophet, if you will, is just that conversation between Habakkuk and God. It hasn't spread any farther than that. And you could see from the first chapter the frustration that Habakkuk has expressed to him. Now, granted, still with dignity and respect, but God wants this relationship with you. It is an intimate relationship. Habakkuk really proves it because he lays out a lot of the bigger picture, like why, and begins to ask these questions. Why? 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 Why is it like this? And here's the thing. Again, we know ultimately why it's like this. We know it's because of sin and brokenness in opposition directly to God's holiness. But unfortunately, there's uncommunicated expectations in our relationship, and those are a relationship killer. Because those uncommunicated expectations are putting an obligation on someone else that was never meant to be an obligation on that other person in the first place. We could go on and on and we could talk some apologetics and all this, but all in all, a lot of people expect God to do a lot of things that God never said he was going to do in all of this. He's brought us to salvation. That's what he's promised us, first and foremost, that he's going to save us. If you wanted a sunshine and rainbow life, well, we will get there, but that's not here, <laughs> okay? The sunshine and rainbow life, the great hope that we have as Christians isn't here. And I think the Apostle Paul says it best to us because if we, as Christians, have our hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied because the life of Christ is a life of suffering. We are called to suffer as Christ has suffered. And we know that our Lord suffered and we know that he went to the cross, but there was mad amount of joy. And please don't think that that life isn't a joy because man, I get to look at all your smiling faces. Like I've got family, I've got friends, you know, there's things, but it's not this love of the world that, that keeps me here. It's the, the love of Christ that keeps me here because to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is like what I said a long time ago, that sometimes death is mercy. And it's a hard you know, thing to grasp, but that's the reality, is that with our hope 
on our expectations of the sinless life that we want here on earth, like it will get there someday. It will absolutely get there someday. And so, but starting first and foremost in this first verse, because I don't want to get too, too far down, down the road, is faith in God to answer his own, to have this relationship. Like he has wanted this. And then let's bridge it to the gospel Jesus is our great mediator between a holy and righteous God and a broken and sinful human being. We need Jesus in this. There is no relationship that we can have without what has been done in Christ. Because, again, the holiness of God is perfection versus our brokenness and our imperfection. We can compare it to in God's unbreakable faithfulness and our wishy-washy faithfulness, that depending on if it suits us or benefits us, we might remain faithful in, in certain aspects of our lives. Tough stuff to see, but reality, reality, you know, Captain, keeping it real up here in a sense, just because we don't want, we don't want all the sugar-coated nonsense. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't benefit us in our lives to see all of this. Now, in this second verse that you see, and the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. You can kind of include the third verse in, in this one too. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. We can have faith in God's word as a promise. His spoken words are promises that will be fulfilled. God does not lie. And just as he says, it will surely come. You can expect it. You can take it to the bank, if you will. This is more valuable than gold that we see. And so we faithfully endure for God's promises, first and foremost, because we have faith in God that he wants this relationship with us. Second, we have faith in God because his spoken words are promises to us. And we can absolutely rely on those. And we can absolutely put our hope in those because it's the assurance of things hoped for. That's faith. It's the conviction of things not seen. That's faith. God said he's going to do it. He's going to do it. And really, when you look at the Old Testament, you have over 300 different prophetic types of messianic prophecies that have all become fulfilled in Christ. Every single one of them. Like it wasn't, like, I forgot we did this a long time ago, but statistically it's like one in two million to the 23rd power or something like that, that there would be one human being born that would fulfill every single prophecy. Which is why, again, we can rely in a sense on Jesus being that Messiah, that promised Messiah, but also, Keep looking at it as God's word is truth. God's word is absolutely truth. I can put my trust in that. Another reason why we can always do that too is realistically, Jesus is the only one that makes any sense around here. <laughs> like, I, depending on where you look and, and how you look at, at certain you know institutions or whatnot, like, they can kind of make sense, but don't. But let's be real that Jesus, he told me who I am. He told me why I'm here. He's told me what's wrong with the world. And he's told me what's, what can be done to fix it. 
Does anyone else have any idea other than that? Because a lot of those questions start off, you know, if you look at the Big Bang Theory, you look at like it all says we're an accident. It all shows us that why we're here is just random chaos. If you took a watch and you like broke it into a million pieces and threw it into the ocean, it's going to come back as a watch. Like that doesn't work. There has to be some type of intelligent design in all of this. Because when I look at all of you and your smiling faces and I think about your lives and your family, your friends, your works, your gifts, your talents, you know, all these different things, I'm like, there is no way that that is an accident. And that actually would take more trust to believe that you being here is an accident more so than the trust it takes to require that, you know, there has to be intelligent design and there has to be this designer or this life giver because for all of this to be random chance, man, that's, that's a pretty amazing random chance. And so if I put my trust in that, a greater, greater man has more faith, I suppose, in, in a weird way because that takes a lot of trust. That takes a lot of faith to think that everything around here is just an accident and there's no reason for anything whatsoever. So, and then lastly, this third part in this very first point, because this first point and the second point are the real meat and potatoes of this, if you will. This last part, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Listen, we can have faith in God's plan. We can absolutely have faith in God's plans. You know, you, you go back and you think about Jeremiah, and for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for peace. That was written certainly to the nation of Israel during a challenging time. It can be used to us and for us, but our plan is very, very, very simple in this. We're waiting for Jesus to come back, and we're here to love until Jesus comes back. That's it. That's the plan. You want to know how to live your life? That's it. Love. Love people. Love the Lord your God. Walk with Him. Acknowledge Him in all your ways. And love your neighbor as yourself. We're just waiting for Jesus to come back. Like, for Israel back in that time, and especially the time of Jeremiah, you don't know what's going on. Because you've got Babylon coming to take you over. You've got Assyria coming to take you over. You're being disciplined to the left. You're being disciplined to the right by God. Like, come on back. Just keep coming back. But you don't know what the future holds or what it brings. But here we are, and we're not worried about countries or, or, or anything like that in these days. We're worried about the church, the individual people that need, you know, hope in this hopeless world. Because if it's just an accident and there's no meaning and purpose, why are we, why are we even carrying on? Why do you wake up in the morning? And, you know, unless you've found something, and we're going to get to that in a minute, because we call that idolatry. This is what motivates you and what moves you and makes you want to get out of bed in the morning. It's totally idolatry. But we see this, and we see this faith in God's plan, and we know God's plan, and we've seen the coming of the Messiah. And so these three things, the faith in God to have this relationship together, that he will you know, speak to us on our own, to answer his own, then we have those covenant promises. We have faith in his word spoken as a promise, which is more valuable than gold. It's no lie. It is going to happen. If God has said it, it will happen. Easy. 
And then faith in God's plan ultimately and all of this. And so we know that too. And we see the gospel and that is the good news because God's plan to save sinners involved not relying on the sinner that's unfaithful, but on God who is faithful and who can actually deal with and get rid of sin in all of these. And so uniquely built into this little section too, I just want to show you guys something about faith. So you see this little statement. So he may run who reads it. He may run who reads it. Okay, I'm going to present to you three avenues to look at that little, little bitty section. So he may run who reads it. It could very simply mean it's a warning to run. <laughs> that anybody who reads this from Habakkuk just is like, I need to get out of Jerusalem. It's time to go. I'm out. I'm running. That's number one. The second way to look at this, so that those, so he may run who reads it. Certainly there were prophets Certainly there were messengers. Certainly there were people. So he who runs, which means he who shares the good news, he who goes and tells others, may read it. That's the second way to look at it. You can look at it as, you know, from a messenger standpoint. You can look at it from a warning standpoint. And then I'll give it to you a third way. So that he may run who reads it, so that he who runs may read it is another way of doing that into sense making it accessible to everyone that's going by making it simple as it's said in here make it plain on tablets make it simple so that everyone who runs by can read it and understand it and then make an informed decision okay that's three avenues three completely different ways of looking at this text. But, which one are you going to take by faith? Oh, oh, now I got your attention, right? Right? Which one? Is it right? It is like a little quiz in a sense. Is God warning people to run? Is God talking about messengers? Is he talking about simplicity for those who are going by? Let me show you one thing about God in all of this because it doesn't matter ultimately which way you take and understand this because the ultimate overarching thing that this points to is that God is a good father whether or not he's telling you to run because well Jerusalem's going down from Babylon praise the Lord praise the Lord that he doesn't give you you know all this sugar and cherry on top and everything and and he lies to you and tries to manipulate you in a sense or anything like no he's straightforward he tells you what's wrong with the world and what's what you know the the problems are we're going to face like one of my favorite things and I wish it wasn't favorite is John 16:33 where he says in this world you will face tribulation and it's like Ugh. It's just harsh truth, but I got to accept it because in this world we do face tribulation. And I can take heart though because Jesus has overcome the world. That's the second half of John 16, 33. I know that Jesus has overcome sin and I know that the major fundamental problem with all of us human beings is sin. But the way it got addressed, the way it got handled, the way it will permanently be done is through Jesus. And, and here we are. And so God is a good father, whether or not he tells us to run, whether or not it's talking about spreading the news, whether or not it's about accessibility to everyone who may.
may or may not run by so that they can understand it or read it. But here's the thing, he cares. Long story short. And we can faithfully endure for God's promises because we can have faith in God that he does answer his own, that he does keep his covenant promises, which is his steadfast love, which, you know, the old Hebrew word has said, which is prominently displayed throughout all of Old Testament theology. We have faith in his spoken word as promises, and we have faith in God's plan. Like, I could realistically stop there and, and, like, praise the Lord and we can be good, but there's more to this chapter. And so this second part is the real important part. And so you can start to see why it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man, especially in, in these situations. But this inability to trust within us, or this inability to trust God within us, is a gigantic problem. This verse 4 is gigantic. It is it is paramount. It is tantamount even to who we are as human beings and understanding the world around us. It says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. If you want to know what's wrong with the world, there's your answer. Behold, his soul is puffed up within him. I had thought about this, <laughs> and as I like to joke about things, because that's what I do, I try to bring levity to harsh situations, if you will, uh, I, <laughs> I imagine it kind of like a game show, okay? Like you're sitting in your office, you're sitting in your room, and then someone walks in, and it's kind of like you hear this backdrop, behold, John, his soul is puffed up within him, behold. And that's just the way it is. Behold Eric. His soul is puffed up within him. It is not upright. Behold Sean. His soul is puffed up within him. It is not upright. We all have this problem. If you remember from Habakkuk last week, we started simple. Like Habakkuk was like, well, here's what the problems are in Israel. And, wow, man, this wind is insane. The devil's not happy. He wants, he wants trouble. We'll get to that. Um, if you remember from last week, it starts off very simple. It starts off inside Israel. Then the problems within them as a country. And then God's like, yeah, I know there's problems with Israel. Let me show you the other problems of the world. And this is what he was alluding to. Because, as he said, he's preparing Babylon, or the Chaldeans, for this. He expands it one level higher. And then as Habakkuk asks the questions again, the third time, in the end of the chapter, it points to God over the whole world. And this is kind of that same, same take, or, or same kind of philosophy, if you will. We can look at this from a small scale, an individual scale. We can look at it as a national scale, and we can look at it as a worldly scale. Because this problem is fundamentally wrong with every human being that's on this planet. So this puffed up, okay, this, this puffed up that they're talking, it means to be lifted, or to be lifted up, or to lift up, if you will. And this comes back to what's wrong with us, in a sense, because what we're doing is making much of ourselves. Much of ourselves and much of our own lives, much of our own values, much of everything 
that we deem important rather than making much of God and how God is important because this is his world, his creation. You know, the glory belongs to him in all aspects of our lives, but most people don't. We try to glorify ourselves. And so this puffed upness and not being upright within him is the same upright as in the sense of being unrighteous. It is not righteous within him. And so we know, again, the character of our God and his holiness and his righteousness in all aspects, that it's an impossible bridge to cross without Christ. Because when we try to be righteous, it may be okay, you know, but the problem is there's more times than not that we're not unrighteous in all of this. And so this verse 4 really is that life verse and really does say exactly what's wrong with the world. It says the Christian life and the Christian walk. And this second half of it, that the righteous shall live by faith, that's used three times in the New Testament, twice by the Apostle Paul and then one by the writer of Hebrews, whoever that may be, might be Barnabas, it might be, you know, whatever. But it's really irrelevant because whoever wrote it, wrote it, all scriptures, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, and correction, and training in righteousness. And so we see these things. But to be lifted, to swell, or to be lifted up, certainly there's no shortage of that, and it's easy to see in society really easy to see in society. You see rich men that boast or are prideful about their riches and their possessions. You can see poor people on the opposite end of the spectrum being proud of their ability to deal with little and having to deal with little in that same way. You can see talented people proud of whatever they're doing uh, proud of their talents. And then you can see those who are not talented, proud of their work ethic. You see people who are full of themselves. And when we say pride, we're like, look at me, look at me. But then on the same exact coin, you can see people who pity themselves and cry out, poor me, poor me. The underlying theme still being ultimately me. And that's the pride. And that's the pride of life. And it can keep going on and on. You see, religious people, proud of their religious works. You see unbelievers, proud of their stance and their unbelief. You can see people that love establishment and societal norms and values, proud of their standing in society. And it's just the same way. When you see those people who are like, dude, I'm not, I'm not part of the system. I'm not part of the establishment. He's the countercultural man. He's proud of his outcastness and how unique he is for not being a part of the establishment, if you will. And so all of these things, like whether it comes to wisdom, knowledge, you know, your work, your talents, whatever it is that we find to do, this problem, this puffed upness, it strikes all of us. And it can make all of us just be bad, <laughs> if you will, because we're just so unruly at that time. So these points, again, to, to keep it and to see it, and simple men that are so proud of these things that how does it ever break? Or, or when will it ever break? 
And the answer is it won't until we're with Jesus in heaven because we continually deal with these struggles as human beings and human beings continue to be this way with the big me, little God syndrome. So I forgot where I was going in all of this, but Romans, Romans 1.17 says that the righteous shall live by faith. The, the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so we see that if anyone is ever to be justified before God, it is that we put our trust in God. If we are to ever see faith, if you will, like Hebrews chapter 11, in that they, the just shall live by faith. Hebrews chapter 11 is the what they call the hall of faith, if you will. And it takes a brief, you know, one chapter history through the entire Old Testament talking about Abraham, talking about Sarah, talking about Noah, talking about Abel, talking about all these people and how faith, trust in God has carried them through. So salvation is wrought solely on trust, solely on God's works, not our own which ought to give us encouragement, which ought to give us trust, which ought to give us faith, because we know that we cannot keep these things. We cannot adhere to the law in all of these examples. And so Romans is the commentary on the justified man. Hebrews, you can see, talking about faith in chapter 11. And then Galatians chapter 3 talks a little bit more about the Christian life in general as brothers and sisters and how we live out our faith by that. But make no mistake that faith is actionable, that we move forward in faith because we can trust our God. And we know our God. And so we see all of these. So verse 5 in this section, ultimately, because again, I don't want to harbor too much on, on sin. I want to harbor on the glory of God and everything that's good. But in verse 5, more examples of pride in action. You see a lack of self-control, okay, in, in that very first part. Wine is a traitor. Let's be real. One of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. The direct antithesis is what happens when you're drunk. You lose self-control. You do things and say things that you know aren't good or aren't healthy for you, let alone all the people that are around you in this moment and this passionate drinking that you're having. So that whole lack of self-control is pride. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it, and you can't tell me otherwise, regardless. So you see that. You see the greed in this and it's even specifically mentioned there beware their greed and then um covetousness always wanting what we don't have that's 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 certainly babylon's excuse here is they always want what they don't have and so they just take it you know collect for their own gathers themselves all nations collect their own all people man brutal but all in all again this inability to trust that exists within us. It's not necessarily wrong because we have to use discernment, but it's wrong when it comes to our Lord because he has proven time and time and time again, whether it is the example of him wanting a relationship, whether it's the promises that his word is truth, whether it's, uh, again, the promise of his plans or the faith to be able to trust in his plans, all of these things we see and we can experience and we can trust God. 
Like this is nothing new. This isn't something you have to build and develop on your own. It's already there. It's already present. Do you embrace it as, as Habakkuk is learning to do in this moment? Or do we continue to ignore it? That seems to be the only part that we have any responsibility over. Do we acknowledge the Lord for who he is or do we move on not trusting him the same as we might not trust the government or medical professionals or you know all these other things that we don't trust in the world today it would seem foolish to me except that i see it happen and that's again our human nature of faithlessness which is why it's okay to embrace faith in god because he is the faithful one he is so much more than we are so this last point, just, just very simple. We could talk about this last point for hours. <laughs> like, no joke, these woes, these woes are intense. But I'm going to simplify them and just make you aware of them. But ultimately, I just want you to, to be aware of what the point is, is that God is always just, and His justice always prevails. Always. And it's not necessarily going to happen in our lifetime, and it's not necessarily going to be seen by us, but to know that God is just and his justice will prevail is like necessary for faith. <laughs> like, because if, if we're like, God, are you really just, are you really going to take care of these issues? Like, and if you're wishy-washy on the fence about it, well, you're not really faithful then in, in this. There's no trust that's built there, but you can see it. And especially think about Habakkuk in this moment. Habakkuk had all those complaints. Now God's replying. Now God is showing and telling Habakkuk, look, Babylon's coming. This is going to happen. But here's what's going to happen to Babylon. So it's like this is covering a lot of years in, in history because it's a vision and it's a prophet. It hadn't happened yet. But Babylon's going to get theirs, just like Assyria got theirs, just like Israel got theirs, just like every nation seems to get theirs in due time you know you see how all these nations start on on poor choices and decisions and bloodshed and lies and slavery and abuse and all this stuff and it's like well when you when you start that way how can you expect it to end any differently you know it doesn't make sense logically reasonably that doesn't seem to make any sense so Verse 6 in itself, just the very first part, shall not all these stake up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, uh, again, this goes back to the Chaldeans or Babylon in this moment. He gathers for himself all nations, collects for his own all people. Now, the beauty of this and the reverse of this is that these woes are what God is showing the oppressed to say to the oppressors. Whereas usually it's always the oppressors telling the oppressed what's going on. But in God's flip and his reversal, just as with everything else is so countercultural with him, this is what those who are being exiled will say to the Babylonians and themselves. And so that we know God is just in all of this. And so let's look at these woes real quick. I don't want to read them all in intricate detail, but... Again, just remember the point that God is always just, His justice will prevail, and that Babylon's future fate is being revealed to Habakkuk in the same note and, and, and moment as Habakkuk finding out that Babylon's going to take over Israel. So it's like 
tension, release, tension, release, tension, release. And I think that's how God works it. And that's how faith grows too, I want you to know, through tension and release. Because without going through these challenges, if it was all sunshine and rainbows all the time, there would be no tension. There would be no need to trust, to have faith in God, let alone his church, let alone other people that we know in our lives. So praise the Lord that these trials and tribulations do happen because they do build faith. They do build trust in our lives so that we can embrace faith in the faithful one, so that we can take refuge in the Lord rather than trust in man for, for all of things. So the very first, there's five woes here altogether. The first woe begins, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own and for how long. And this ultimately in the end, since those who plunder will be plundered, but this ultimately goes back to pride. Very simply that God is opposed to, the, to those who are prideful in all of this. And you see that with Babylon and, and that's why I even brought up verse 5 again, because there's a lot of pride that goes on there. There's national identity. We're going to take what's not ours. We're going to hurt other people. But as long as it benefits us, I don't care. And, and you still see that today. You still absolutely see all of these things today. So this very first woe that goes, um, what is it? It's verse, verse 6 through 8. That woe is about pride and that those who plunder can expect to be plundered too. This next one, the next point, is verse 12 through 14. If Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, 9 through 11. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. Again, this is people who are looking for comfort at the expense of others, if you will. And this can very simply be described as those who are greedy, those who aren't satisfied with enough. You collect, and, and again, at the expense of other people. Um, evil gain says forfeits true life in this, but public shame will come to those who, through evil gain, reveal, in essence, a wasted life. When he's talking about a forfeited life, it's a wasted life. People are going to see you for exactly who you are and, and what you've done. And honestly, in the news right now, too, you can see that. There's a lot of people who have said a lot of things that now it's coming back full circle to them. They're forfeiting their lives, in a sense. Because who is going to listen to you? Who is going to trust you? Who is going to be your friend when your atrocities are brought to light? That's a reality. Remember, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you're greedy, if you're prideful, God will oppose you. We say it, you know, if God is for us, who can be against us? But the reality is, if you're sinning, God can be against you too. So it's just interesting to think about in all of these. And so you see that, that uh, the wasted life because of greed and, and just the challenges there. Uh, the third one is probably the most interesting one. The woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Very simply, that deals solely with violence. If, if you're violent and, and you hurt other people, well, God's going to be against you too there because this is all his creation, this is all his people. And he doesn't just talk about human beings. He talks about cities. 
He talks about animals. He talks about plants in, in all of these. And what's beautiful about this verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That goes back to, again, God revealing that he's going to take care of all of this and that people will ultimately know that he is Lord. Another way that I explained it too is that you will be accountable for your actions. Every single human being will be accountable for their actions. Every single human being will have their own individual judgment day. And let me be clear, if you don't want God now, in this life, you're not going to get God in the next life, the second life, heaven, the afterlife. He's going to give you what you want, which is a life apart from Him. And when he talks about Sheol, understand that that is the pit of darkness. When he talks about as wide as Sheol earlier, when you're in a room that's completely dark, it seems like it goes on forever or that it can go on forever. And it's just an emptiness and it's a void. And this is exactly what we ultimately want because of that lack of trust. So I hope people can grow to trust God to know Him, to love Him, to serve Him, to see His goodness, to taste and see that the Lord is good in all aspects of our lives. And even though we don't get it the way that we want to get it, that it still happens, that God is faithful, and that God's justice will prevail, and that He is always just. So we will be accountable for those actions. And again, number three, that woe talks about those who are violent. Woe number four which is verse 15 through 17. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath for them and get them drunk in order to gaze on their nakedness. I find that the easiest way to explain this is watch out for those who are manipulative. Those who want to use you for their personal gain. Those who will entice you with their goods or their services that will try to use you again for their benefit, even though it may or may not help you, but they don't really care in the end. Because as long as it helps them, that's all that matters in the end. Um, ultimately, too, what it's saying here is you victimize the lands. You can expect the same. And maybe you've heard it said you reap what you sow. Remember these things. Remember these things, as especially when we embrace faith in the faithful one, because God is the exact opposite of every one of these statements that I'm giving you too, because he stands in direct opposition to them. And so you reap what you sow, and watch out for those who are manipulative. And then number five here, the last one, verses 18 through 20. This talks about idolatry. This stems back to the puffed-up nature of man in itself. And it says, Your glory lies in yourself, but you will behold the glory of the Lord. And the long and short of it. Watch out for idolatry in your life. Things that you put above your relationship with God. I gave you some examples. There's a gazillion more examples of what pride looks like in human beings' lives. Because it, you know, it, again, doesn't matter rich, poor, fat, skinny, old, young, doesn't matter. 
It exists everywhere and in everyone and everything. But the glory of the gospel in, in all of this. Verse 4, you see that. That is a major verse. That is something we all need to, to learn and embrace. The soul of every human being that you come and cross with is puffed up. It is lifted up to self. Okay, It even happens for us. We can get puffed up in our ability to pray. People can come up to me after this and be like, great sermon, and I'll be like, yeah, it was. Yeah. I'm all about that. John, John Bunyan, uh, I read this, that uh, John Bunyan said, uh, you know, someone came up to him after service, and he's like, you're too late. The devil already told me that, that I did a great sermon. Thank you. You know, like, because it, it affects us. It affects our pride, you know. And, and so we obviously need to watch out of these. But verse 4, verse 13, verse 14, and then verse 20 continually point us to God's control and care over the earth and everything that dwells within, which is why we can trust him. There is control over all situations that are going on in the earth. Sometimes you will see God intervene more than not. Remember that God is at war ultimately with sin. And so he's, you know, circumventing that storm or even sometimes sending that storm to that direction to change, you know, paths, to alter, alter ways for these people's lives. And so the gospel is good news because it goes back to exactly what this is all about. It has always been about faith. If you go back and look through redemptive history, it has never been about how good you perform or what you do. Certainly, I don't preach about lawlessness because God does have a plan and a design, but I also don't preach about legalism because there's nothing that you have to do in all of this to earn favor with a holy God. If there is anything whatsoever that we have, it's to repent and to believe, which again is that faith, which is that trust, which is that understanding of God and his ways and his nature. And so when we look at those verses, we see that, you know, God tells us the truth, that the problem with the world isn't him not being active. The problem with the world is us in this. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. Is that, is, that, is that God's fault? No, it's not God's fault. You see in verse 13, Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? Did God not create work? Did God not create you know, the trees and everything else that goes into this so that we can have warmth, that we can cook food, that we can work and, you know, provide for ourselves in a sense. Like, again, all of this goes back to God. The further earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Again, shows his, that again, this judgment day, like it's going to happen for everybody. You've got these violently ugly, nasty, manipulative people that tell you one thing and that are just awful to you and treat you poorly, uh, all that, there's going to come a day for them. They're going to get what they're sowing, if you will. You're going to reap what you sow. In all aspects, you're going to reap what you sow. And then that verse 20, 
the most powerful one. We worship things that don't talk back. <laughs> we worship things that have no lasting value. We worship things that provide a temporary hope. And then when these things that we worship fade away, so does our hope. Our hope fades away just the same. But, the big but, the Lord is in His holy temple. Amen! Come on! He's real! Like, do you have the faith to know He's real? Like, this is what I wonder sometimes, too. Like, when you're going around and you see some of these, like, is this just for show? Is this just a game? Or is this the real reality of life that we need to grasp more so than what the culture produces? Was it just something nice to have? Some people say that. I really want your Jesus because he sounds like a nice guy. I really want him. It would be great. What do I have to do to get Jesus? As if it's that way. It's never been that way. But praise the Lord that God continues to show his faithfulness. Because in the midst of all this, and you see the pride, you see the greed, you see the violence. Again, tell me, is this something new? Is this new going on today that didn't happen all those years ago? No, it's the same thing. It just seems, and, and we do know for sure that it's only going to get worse till Jesus comes back, so maybe it's starting to pick up steam, but all of these things have continued to happen. So what does that mean now? It means, what are you doing in your life? How, how is the Lord being presented before you? Do you trust that he has your best interests in mind? Do you believe his promises to be true? Do you know he has a plan and that it's a good plan? I believe we all know these things, but have we embraced them? Because that's the catch, right? Like, you see a lot of people who are so bent out of shape about what's going on in the government. You see a whole lot of people that are bent out of shape about what's going on with science. Here's, here's the ultimate problem. And, and I saw this in a brother of the Lord at another church, and, and it's bothersome because he's an actual elder in a church, but he is so like adamantly mouthy and talking about all the problems with the government. I'm like, did you forget that God elects the leaders? Like, let's be real. <laughs> you know, either you know Jesus or you don't know Jesus. And, and trust him or you don't trust him in all of this. And so Habakkuk 2 is a beautiful example of that. And, and we hopefully see that, that you can embrace faith in the faithful one as time continues to move forward, and especially in our walks and the challenges that we face in our walks. Because God is still with us. He will always be with us. We have his son as mediator. We have his blood as propitiation against God's wrath. We have his love forevermore. His steadfast love and his covenant commitments can't be broken. Jesus said, my sheep hear my, my voice and they know my name. No one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. Like, are all these things truths? Or are they just nice sayings or something to that effect? Like, I know it's a truth. I hope we all know it's a truth. Jesus came in the flesh. That's a truth. You can't change it. So what do you do with Jesus? 
either he's a prophet, he's, he's, you know, either he says who he says he is, or he's not. He's just some nice guy. But we all have to wrestle with that too. And as much as, you know, we look on faith, we see in that beginning passage, in that, that verse 3, that there are even options of faith, which avenue. But don't get so bent out of shape because they continue to point towards God's goodness no matter what and no matter how we look at it so that we can embrace this faith, we can embrace the salvation that's been given to us and we can enjoy today, tomorrow, next week, knowing and experiencing and living out this faith both as head knowledge as well as actionable items walking forward in the truth until we get to that day that we're with Jesus. So I'm going to stop because I, I, there's so much more. It's awesome. I love Jesus. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, you are good. And that you, Lord, have provided and continued to protect and continue to love us despite our waywardness at times. Lord, you sent your Son, you know, to be that propitiation, to save us from that wrath against sin that we so rightly you know, deserve. We see Babylon in this. We see their greed. We see their pride. We see their violence. We see their manipulation. We see their idolatry. And Lord, as much and as wicked as they are, I mean, Israel was that wicked. Every human being on the planet is that wicked. Lord, I hope and pray that we can be used to bring more people to the knowledge of the truth that is you and that your salvation that is secure and so that people who are religious don't keep trying to do all these religious works to try to earn favor but lord i just ask for your grace as always in, in all of this and that you continue to knit us together as your children as your family and that you can still continue to be you know a, a part of everything that we do i hope you walk before us in all aspects of our lives i hope we can look backward on our lives to continue to see how faithful you've been even when we're going through a storm i hope lord we can continue to look upward and continue to see your holiness in all aspects of creation as well as our lives you know you look at the blades of grass and we've just become desensitized to them but how amazing are they how amazing are those big trees that are burning down in California how amazing are you know weather uh, storms and, and just everything that is alive and going in this world Lord you are good it is in you that we will trust and it's in your salvation not our own worth that we rest so Lord continue to use us well in all aspects it's in your name we pray amen